This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, more Americans will be seeing their medical provider virtually. Big insurers are paving the way for patients to be seen by their provider online for a variety of ailments that would ordinarily require a trip to their provider's office. Well, the expansion of telemedicine is getting a big boost from the insurance industry. Aetna currently allows for some 3 million e-visits with clinicians online, and that number is expected to grow to 8 million in the coming year. And WellPoint, another big insurer, anticipates 4 million e-visits in the coming year. It makes good business sense for them because it saves money. And for patients faced with higher and higher deductibles and co-pays, it's more affordable for them as well. A trip to the emergency room could cost thousands of dollars or more. A typical teledoc consult is $50, not to mention the convenience for the patient as well. Well, there are some urging that we move into this realm with caution. Some providers concerned about the high-tech approach undermining the high-touch approach, maybe some subtleties that are missed without a face-to-face consult, but I don't think they have much evidence to support that view. And then, there, of course, there are rules governing medical licensures that don't allow for practicing across state lines. We're still in the early stage of uh, telemedicine regulations that will address all of these issues. That's something that our guest today knows quite a bit about. Humayun Chowdhury is president and CEO of the Federation of State Medical Boards, which oversees licensing and disciplining of physicians around the country, helping to set best practice guidelines. There are proposed new draft regulations, an interstate compact that would expedite licensure for physicians seeking to practice in multiple states that would help alleviate the growing shortage of physicians and allow for more expansive telemedicine enterprises should be an interesting conversation. We'll also have our weekly visit with Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. No matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, email us at info at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Humayun Chowdhury in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare. With these healthcare headlines, two federal appeals court panels issued conflicting rulings on whether the government could subsidize health insurance premiums for people in three dozen states that use the federal insurance exchange. The decisions are the latest in a series of legal challenges to central components of President Obama's health care law. The United States Court of Appeals for the 4th District in Richmond upheld subsidies, saying that a rule issued by the Internal Revenue Service was a permissible exercise of the agency's discretion. The ruling came within hours of a two-to-one ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which said the government could not subsidize insurance for people in states that use the federal exchange. That decision could potentially cut off financial assistance for more than 4.5 million people who were found eligible for subsidized insurance on the federal exchange or marketplace. Without subsidies, many consumers would go without insurance and would be exempted from the individual mandate because insurance was unaffordable for them. Meanwhile, the numbers of those who gained coverage during the first open enrollment period shows an estimated 20 million Americans gained coverage. The Journal of the American Medical Association calculated some 7.8 million young adults had gained coverage under Obamacare by being allowed to stay on their parents' plan until the age of 26. Eight million gained coverage through the online insurance marketplaces. 
and over 4 million gained coverage through the expansion of Medicaid, though only half of the states in the country chose to expand Medicaid coverage to include more folks living near the poverty line. And handling all of that online insurance business continues to present challenges. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid has kicked off a search for a company that will serve as the technology vendor for healthcare.gov, the federal insurance exchange. They're looking for a contractor capable of, quote, working under aggressive time constraints. Officials saying this does not mean they're dissatisfied with the current contractor, Accenture, who replaced the original contractor that botched the rollout. Cigarette smoking, responsible for some half million American deaths per year, and yet smoking remains a persistent health scourge in this country as well as around the world. A Florida jury has dealt a decisive blow to one of the leading manufacturers of cigarettes, R.J. Reynolds, a $23 billion punitive damage ruling in the case of a woman who sued the company for her husband's untimely death due to smoking. The case, Cynthia Robinson versus R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, sued on the grounds the company knowingly sold a product to her husband, a longtime smoker, by marketing a product they knew was addictive, deadly, and filled with harsh chemicals that weren't listed on the package. The jury also awarded $16 million in compensatory damages to the plaintiff, sending a statement to the tobacco industry that it cannot continue to lie to the American people and government about the addictiveness of their product. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Humayun Chowdhury, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of State Medical Boards, a national nonprofit organization that represents the 70 state medical boards of the United States and its territories responsible for licensing and disciplining doctors. Dr. Chowdhury served as the Commissioner of Health Services for Suffolk County, New York, an internist and osteopath. Dr. Chowdhury served as the Chairman of the Department of Medicine at the College of Osteopathic Medicine at the New York Institute of Technology, and he's author of several books, including Medical Licensing and Discipline in America. He earned his master's at Harvard School of Public Health, his MD at the New York Institute of Technology. Dr. Chowdhury, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on your show. That's great. Your, your organization, uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards, monitors regulations for licensing and discipline of physicians across the country. And while you're a national organization, licensing of physicians is still really governed at the state and territory level. Could you share with our listeners a little bit of history about the actual scope and reach of the Federation and what type of oversight and policy directions are you responsible for in the medical field? Sure. The practice of medicine in the United States has been regulated by the states since really the founding of our nation. The Federation of State Medical Boards, my organization, was founded more than 100 years ago to respect states' rights while encouraging the sharing of information about doctors, uh, encouraging the creation of a common language and taxonomy related to physician discipline, and best practices in the area of licensure and discipline of physicians. So the FSMB does not have any authority over the state boards as such, but we do provide services for them as well as for physicians and put together policies on their behalf that better protect the public. Ultimately, the mission of every state licensing board is to protect the public. Um, Many of these policies that the Federation uh, creates over time become state law uh, in whole or in part or not at all. 
whether they do and to what extent is entirely up to the state. Dr. Chowdhury, one area that's beginning to get a lot of attention is telemedicine, which we think is poised to just explode uh, in the coming years, combination of both available technology and real need for increasing capacity. But the efforts to expand telehealth and telemedicine have really been hampered by um, restrictions that are imposed by the way the state medical licensing protocols are written. So your uh, organization, the Federation of State Medical Boards, has been getting some attention lately for a proposal that would help expedite licensure across state lines. Maybe you could tell us about this draft legislation that you've created, the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. Uh, about two decades ago, the states recognized a need to support what's known as licensure portability in other words, the ability of a physician to practice in more than one jurisdiction. So, for instance, back in 1996, the Federation created, on behalf of the states, a Federation Credentials Verification Service, FCVS, so that physicians wouldn't have to request a transcript from a medical school or verify their identity every time they applied for an additional license or moved to another state. Last year, the states wondered if they could do more or should do more for three primary reasons. One, the worsening physician shortage. Second, the Affordable Care Act and the greater need for access to care as a result of it. And really the third point that you mentioned, Margaret, the advancement of telemedicine. And so all those three compelling reasons came together. This began January of 2013. The states got together under our auspices and explored what might be other options by which they can support these efforts. And so was born the notion of maybe an interstate medical licensure compact may be a way to address these issues in a, in a way that makes sense for the state regulatory boards, for physicians, as well as the public. So frame up for us what are some of the uh, requirements that states are thinking about and uh, what are the criteria governing providers seeking expedited licensures across state lines might face? Uh, how do you think this is going to roll out? Is there sort of a timeline for it? Well, thankfully, Mark, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, it turns out that interstate compacts have been around in the United States since the founding of the nation. There are actually more than 200 interstate compacts. Many are national in scope and some are regional. So the good news is that this isn't an entirely new concept. It is perhaps for the state licensing boards as it relates to doctors. It looks like the states will be requiring that a physician who wishes to get multiple state licenses through this pathway uh, should have an unrestricted license to practice in one of the participating states, and we call that a principal uh, licensure state. So you have to identify as a physician, if you want to go through this pathway, one state where you've obtained licensure in the usual way. Uh, you should have an unblemished disciplinary record, uh, completion of a residency training program, and not be the subject of any investigation by a licensing agency or law enforcement. So if a physician does not meet every one of these eligibility requirements, they are welcome to apply for state medical licensure, or as many as they want, under the current pathway, which doesn't generally require specialty certification, for example, or completion of a residency. But the states felt that there were some common elements to the requirements that would assure them of patient safety, ultimately, uh, while enabling uh, this sort of licensure portability to occur in a way that hasn't been seen before in the United States. You asked about the timing of this. When we presented the idea to our House of Delegates last April in 2013, 
there was actually unanimous support to aggressively explore this idea. We haven't seen unanimous support like that in a long time coming from <laughs> across the United States. So there is a lot of support for it, a momentum. We're currently in the process of finalizing some of the language uh, because it's critical that you get the language right if you want the states to endorse it because once you've come up with the language, that's how you can facilitate the states to sign off on it. But you want to make sure you've done your homework first. Uh, this is indeed the fastest moving initiative in the history of our organization. Hmm. Let me maybe uh, pose two questions. One, you're certainly not the only healthcare profession that's been looking at this issue of the interstate compacts. And we hear so much these days about interprofessional collaboration and practice and education. I'm curious as to whether you're collaborating with other uh, professional organizations, nursing, dentistry, pharmacy, and trying to move forward kind of a common agenda, which really would speak to a change, a significant change in healthcare in the United States across the board. And then I guess on just a specific level, back to the safeguards issue, if there is a problem with a uh, provider who requires professional discipline, how does the fact that they're licensed under the compact make things different from what we would see today? Yeah, great questions, actually, Margaret. Uh, on the first one, uh, we have over the years been having very good communications and meetings uh, over the years with our friends at the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, um, as well as the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. Those are our two counterparts in the area of nursing and pharmacy. In fact, the last time we, we got together, we remarked that collectively we regulate several million doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, and as team-based care moves forward, there's a greater need for us to sort of not only stay close in touch, but also to share some best practices. There is a nursing compact, the nursing profession working under the auspices of the NCSBN, the Nursing Association for the Boards, um, several years ago put together a compact, and they've had some success. 24 states have signed off on that. So when we began discussions about a interstate compact for physicians, we talk to our friends at the nursing boards to find out uh, what worked and what didn't work. Why were they unable, for instance, to get the entire nation, all the states, to sign off on right. it? So for the physician side on the state board side, that helped because uh, the physicians said that um, if the state boards are going to sign off on this, they need to know if a physician is practicing medicine in their jurisdiction. They felt hesitant about giving carte blanche approval for a physician to practice anywhere within the compact states without some notification. And so one way to achieve that was through making sure that when a physician signals that they wish to practice in a particular jurisdiction, that jurisdiction would formally issue a license, just like they do today, mm -hmm. which allows them to follow through should something go wrong. And that was a critical step in getting much broader support mm -hmm. than we might have otherwise. In the current process, when a board action is taken by a licensing board through uh, the Federation's auspices, we have a board action data bank, and as soon as that information becomes available to us electronically, we share that instantaneously with all 70 of the state medical and osteopathic boards in the United States. And that's a great mechanism of assuring that there's data sharing and information sharing. With the compact, there's actually greater flexibility because you can build in language to uh, assure even greater protection of the public. And so one of the items in the compact is um, states that any state that is partner to this uh, compact would agree ahead of time that if one of the physicians who's gotten a license through this compact is being investigated, that that 
information that that physician is being investigated also be shared with the other states as a sort of a heads up. Right now, many state statutes only allow sharing of information across state lines when an action is taken, not before. But you can build this into the compact because mm -hmm. all the states have to endorse it. So that adds an additional layer of public protection mm -hmm. so that if there's a need, and medicine can be wonderful, physicians by and large are outstanding individuals who, who provide a lot of services to the community at large, but every now and then things mm -hmm. go wrong mm -hmm. and there should be mechanisms in place to protect the public. And so that is something that exists in this compact in a, in a better way than perhaps mm -hmm. exists otherwise. We're speaking today with Dr. Humayun Chowdhury, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of State Medical Boards, a national nonprofit organization that represents the 70 state medical boards of the United States and its territories responsible for licensing and discipline. Uh, physicians. Dr. Chowdhury, uh, talk to me a little bit about the Affordable Care Act, and were there any elements of it that sort of stepped on the toes of states' uh, uh, medical licensing boards or issues that you're still trying to work out with uh, HHS in terms of policies or things that you've brought up legislatively? Were there any uh, tension points? To be honest, the one that most physicians talk about is the area of reimbursement, but that's an issue that the state boards don't usually uh, get involved with because we're about public protection. We're mm -hmm. not about the issue of costs per se. Having said that, we have a database of physicians who get disciplined as well as physicians who are licensed, and we are having some very good conversations with folks at CMS as well as HHS about making sure that they know that they have access to this sort of information today that may not always have been possible. So that type of conversation is occurring, but really nothing directly in terms of anything coming out of the uh, administration that direct negatively impacts what the states are trying to do. In fact, quite the contrary, earlier this year, the Federation received a very nice letter signed by 16 U.S. senators, bipartisan, as a matter of fact, thanking the state boards for moving forward with this interstate compact idea. Uh, you know, talk about broad support. Mm -hmm. Right. Normally see a bipartisan letter of support for something. Frame it. Like Frame it, exactly. <laughs> Frame it as a matter of fact. But um, there's been broad support for what we're trying to do, which is move forward with supporting the access to care needs of the nation's population in a smart way, in mm -hmm. a way that preserves state-based medical licensure, which has been around since the beginning of the nation, and ultimately protects the public. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Chowdhury, I know an enormous focus of the organization is the interstate compact now, but I wonder if you could share your thoughts on another area that you've been engaged in. That is really you're considering social media in the healthcare field. I think your organization has taken a look at the proliferation of social media use among healthcare professionals. And I'm curious, what are you seeing as some of the trends where social media and medicine intersect, certainly positively, and also what kind of abuses are being reported or are you concerned about? And are you in the process of developing some social media guidelines that you're going to be recommending? So as a matter of fact, just as with telemedicine, while technology is a wonderful thing, we all have smartphones, it seems. We all have tablets or desktop computers, and we can engage in uh, instantaneous sharing of information and communications 
unlike ever before. And, and that's wonderful because there's a great potential there to support the healthcare needs, especially among underserved populations as well as uh, those in rural areas. That said, I'll go back to my original comment that the primary function of the state boards is to make sure that the public is protected. And so rather than just being reactive, over the years the Federation has tried very hard to work with the states to be proactive and not only be good at enforcing when things go wrong, but also giving some recommendations. So several years ago, um, the Federation came up with a telemedicine policy that we've recently updated as an example of how we're trying to keep up with all the advancements going on. Social media is the other area that you've raised that uh, was not actually on our radar as an area of concern per se, but we were approached by some researchers a few years ago who wanted to study the issue, and we said, sure, we're not sure this is even a big issue among the state licensing boards. To make a long story short, we did a survey of our licensing boards, and we were quite taken aback by the results, which were published in JAMA a few years ago, that 92% of the responding state medical boards said that they have had a problem with having to discipline physicians for inappropriate use of social media. And the three areas that they most commonly identified through the survey was, one was inappropriate patient communication, where perhaps a physician was too forward with a patient or engaged in inappropriate communication that you would never expect to occur in person, but somehow with technology it was facilitated, including asking a patient on a date, for instance. Another was misrepresentation of credentials, where a physician uh, using social media claimed to have either a specialty certification or an expertise in an area when they really didn't. And a third was really a violation of patient confidentiality, which has always been a concern with technology and the ubiquity of it and how there may not necessarily be safeguards. Um, and there were others related to um, sometimes derogatory patient remarks or uh, discriminatory language that may be used in social media, even among physicians. So this um, alarmed the state boards. And so two years ago, the Federation partnered with the American College of Physicians and uh, put together a um, policy statement, a joint policy statement that was published in Annals of Internal Medicine in April of 2013 that goes into some of this background but essentially says to physicians, feel free to use technology, but please pause before you send. Use social media thoughtfully and recognize that there are some inherent dangers in how you may use it inappropriately. Uh, you've also had some of your own experience uh, with social media. You were the uh, health commissioner uh, f uh, at Suffolk uh, County in New York, ninth largest uh, population base in the nation. And uh, talk to us a little bit about your own personal experience there. I think it was with the H1N1 flu epidemic. And uh, what were the lessons learned for the for the public as well? A little outside of this particular conversation, but you you have a lot of hats that you wear. <laughs> well, it was a good example, Mark, of how social media can be of value not only in one-to-one uh, -one physician to patient care, but also in population health and public health. So Suffolk County, for some of your listeners who may not know, is a fairly large jurisdiction, about 900 square miles, um, with a population of about a million and a half. And we have about 
we have all these towns within the, the jurisdiction as well and town governments as well. So um, as the H1N1 flu epidemic uh, began to hit, and we started seeing cases in the schools. We had to shut down schools. We had to work very closely with state agencies devoted to public health, as well as the CDC and some federal agencies as well. And while 2007 and 8 may not seem that long ago, um, BlackBerry and Twitter were still relatively new, and smartphones were relatively new, but many of us used it in public health and found uh, much to our pleasant surprise that many of the federal officials involved in that, in managing that epidemic, as well as the officials in New York State, were also using it. So it was a great way to not only get information instantaneously about any new cases, for instance, or any follow-up investigation that needed to be done in any particular town or portion of the county, but also enabled me to stay in touch with the leadership of all the towns and villages across the county. And so that really made, impressed me with mm -hmm. the value of technology um, in that uh, particular area of public health. We've been speaking with Dr. Humayun Chowdhury, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of State Medical Boards, a national nonprofit organization that represents 70 state medical boards of the United States and its territories responsible for licensing and disciplining physicians. You can learn more about their work by going to fsmb.org or follow him on Twitter at FedMed1. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. My pleasure. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, in the run-up to the November midterm elections, we're seeing Republicans claiming that their Republican primary opponents support the Affordable Care Act. But the claims use out-of-context quotes and exaggerations. In Georgia, in a contentious House race, Republicans Bob Johnson and Buddy Carter are both opposed to the Affordable Care Act and have called for its repeal. But you wouldn't know that from their competing ads. Johnson's ad claims that Carter said Obamacare was, quote, not so bad. That's a cherry-picked quote. Carter said that, quote, some of the things that have happened so far are not so bad. But he immediately added that, quote, the worst part is yet to come. Johnson's campaign website further claims that Carter left the door open to Obamacare's Medicaid expansion in Georgia, and it highlights part of an op-ed Carter had written. But that, too, was out of context. Carter was explaining the views of others who favored the Medicaid expansion, saying he disagrees with them. A Carter ad, meanwhile, says that Johnson has, quote, membership in and endorsement from groups that support Obamacare. The ad doesn't say this, but it's referring to Johnson's membership in the American Medical Association, which has generally been supportive of the Affordable Care Act. Johnson is a surgeon. But Johnson, like Carter, has called for repeal of the law. As the AMA president said in an interview on C-SPAN this summer, some members of the AMA support the health care law and some do not. The Carter campaign cites other medical groups that support Johnson, but those associations don't change the fact that Johnson has been opposed to the health care law. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Food labeling could be going one step further than simple calorie counts in the future. Public health researchers at the University of North Carolina have some pep in their step for another approach to getting consumers' attention when pondering those food and beverage choices. There's growing interest in a new approach to displaying calorie counts next to menu items. Instead, show the amount of exercise that would be required to burn off those calories consumed from drinking, say, a 20-ounce cola. They developed an icon symbolizing a person walking and how far that person would have to walk to erase the calories they were just about to consume. They conducted a randomized study to determine what, if any, effect the measure would have on consumer choices. And we showed them basically a full menu with all items. And so one group was randomized to no information except the food items. Another one was a menu of pretty much every item, exact same way, and it had the calories. And then a third option had calories plus minutes to walk with our little figure, and it had, you know, for example, 91 minutes. And then finally, a fourth menu that showed the same exact thing with the same exact figure with miles to walk, so it might say 5.1 miles. Dr. Anthony Vieira, professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Public Health, he said the study showed quite clearly that when consumers saw that consuming a food or drink item would require them to walk five miles to burn those calories off, as opposed to just seeing the calories, it had a direct impact on the choice. So if you looked at total calories ordered, when you were shown no label, the average calories ordered were 1,020. When you were shown calories only, which is a you know sort of the policy, the current policy, the average order was 927 calories. And when shown calories plus miles, the average order was 826 calories. So as you can see, there was a definite decrease in calories when you're shown calories plus miles. The results of the initial study were so conclusive, they're now scaling up their research to test it in restaurants. Restaurant food labeling, showing a consumer how much exercise will be required to burn off the calories consumed, helping them comprehend the actual calorie value of the foods they choose, and maybe thus positively impacting their intention to consume fewer calories more wisely? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.